Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Good evening and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, July 27th, 2023. Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton here to bring you all the latest Formula One news. We're going to preview the Belgian Grand Prix this weekend before we pack our bags and pack up the recording equipment. Just kidding. We're going to keep going even through the summer break, but I'm rambling already. We're only 53 seconds into this one. Anyways, Mr. Hamilton, how are you? You look relaxed tonight, or is that just a facade? Oh, it's a facade. It's always a facade. Everything about me is a mirage. It's a vision. But my <laughs> friend, how did you like me outing you on social media for using a 10-year-old laptop produced to produce this show? <laughs> yeah, that was a bit embarrassing, but you know, it's actually not entirely accurate either because you know the, the this laptop it's not new it's about 5 years old but you know the the big thing we were just talking about before we went uh, on air is that the big thing that we have here is that um, or that we need is a modern reliable internet connection and uh, last year this time last year they actually laid new fiber optic cable throughout our neighborhood and we were just waiting to get our complex all hooked up and a couple of weeks ago, the crew came in here, started connecting everybody. We're just, hey, this is great. They're going to put in the new connection. And we're like literally 50 feet across from the service box. And, um, you know, th- they were busy for an entire day. And they get a, a knock on the door like one afternoon. And the, um, the the foreman is like, yeah, we got bad news. We, we were not able to upgrade your place because tree root had crushed your conduit. Anyway, so I was just like, oh, man, this means we're going to have to put up with this ancient slow internet connection forever, literally. And then uh, about a week ago, one of the uh, the guys on, the, uh, on his crew came up, knocked on the door, said, hey, we got some specialty equipment coming next week. That was yesterday. They spent literally an entire day doing whatever. But the good news is that they've they've put in the new modern connection. We're just waiting for the the, the reps from the uh, from the, from Telus to get in touch with us, and then uh, we Daily, can upgrade nobody, and get modern not internet. Not even your kids and your wife. Nobody has suffered because of your terrible internet worse than me. The number of segments we've had to <sighs> re-record because the connection goes down. I know. So really, know. you're doing this for me. Tell us, thank you for all the efforts <laughs> that you're making within Daily's luxury compound. It's much appreciated. But my friend, we've got so much so much F one yes. stuff talk about today i don't even know where to to start i'll kind of let it you take it from here 
Well, why don't we logically just start from the beginning, whether or not that's a good place to start with what we have. Let's give a shout out to those who take care of us. First of all, let's give a shout out to Magnus and the crew at theraceweekend.com. And if you enter our our special promo code, ScuderiaPod, at checkout, you can save 10% on a subscription. And that is Race Weekend, I always get this mixed up, R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com. Also check out RacingExclusive.com, and that's RacingExclusives.com obviously and uh, all of uh, the merch that they have on the site there comes with a certificate of authenticity absolutely worth checking out hammy do you have fantasy standings fantasy are up standings? in the let's big, do big, it big announcement let's do it mr bangles bubs has slipped all the way up into i shouldn't say slipped i mean slipped he's up climbed <laughs> all the way into the number one spot with 3400 points number two vince des nice. two number three vince des one slotting into number four ole's lena's number five crash team racing one Staying solid at number six, L1F1. Moving up to number seven, Michael Kronja, 16. I've not seen this individual before, but kudos on making the top 10. Sliding down to eight, Nathan's team sliding down to nine, no does. Staying solid at number 10, Gotifi team. Up to number 11, Matt Matt Noob team three. Again, another team I haven't seen before, so it's cool that there's still activity happening. Number 12, another one, Yellow Racing. Welcome. Welcome to the top 15, sliding down to number 13, Red Devil 7, number 14, Lions F1, and sliding down to number 15, the bad guy. One, so big shout out to Bengals Bob. So he's sitting at number one with 3,428 points, only 11 points behind number two, Vince Desk, team two. So really close at the top of the yeah. championship, unlike the actual F1 championship, at least our <laughs> fantasy, at least our fantasy league is close. Yeah, if you're bored of what's happening on Sunday afternoon, make sure you tune in Sunday night to get a, a you know the the real time update in our fantasy league because that's where all the action is this year. You're absolutely right, Mark. Because uh, just looking here, I've got the actual standings from the Formula One World Championship. Max Verstappen on top with 281 points. Sergio Perez second with 171. Fernando Alonso still by the skin of his teeth, uh, holding on to third in the Drivers' Championship with 139. Lewis Hamilton fourth with 133. And then George. Russell fifth with 90 points over on the constructor side. Excuse me. It's uh, Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez and Red Bull Racing with 452 points. You got Mercedes in second with 223, Aston Martin with 184, Ferrari fourth with 167, and McLaren fifth with 87 points in the world's championship talk a little bit uh, more about that in a moment we got some uh, quick uh, news hits here uh, to do before we get to that so porsche is committed uh, to formula e through 2026 after they've walked away from their formula one plans so i guess that's probably the last we'll ever hear of uh, you know porsche coming to formula one at least in the short to medium to the long term who knows maybe your grandkids will see uh, porsche and formula one mclaren 11 years since they had back-to-back podiums of course they got a podium in britain and then lando was back on the podium in hungary this past that past weekend great to see them uh, back on the podium again uh, th- th- this past weekend exciting to see and 86 percent of winners at spa francochamp have been world champions that includes Felipe Massa, Danny Ricardo, and Charles Leclerc, who are the exceptions. And that is a per Maddie Xish something on Reddit. I'm never good with the handles. And then the Hungarian Grand Prix trophy. So I talked about this um, on the, 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 the post race show on Sunday. So they are made of, you know, a 
pardon me, but um, <laughs> my Hungarian's not really all that great. But I'll give it a shot. So all the trophies that were uh, made for the, the the podium celebration on Sunday all bespoke as they usually are. They are you know about forty thousand euros, about forty five thousand dollars US, all handmade, all bespoke. Like I say, it's probably six months uh, production. And Lando, you know, you know, I, I, yeah, at the time I thought that he actually smashed it on the trophy, but he just smashed it on the uh, on the podium, and then the trophy just tumbled down. So it takes six months to make one of those uh, beautiful creations. But they're going to something's going to happen. I don't know if they're going to try and replace Max's or if they're going to fix it. But he's going to get a new one at uh, at the end of the year. And Lando has uh, has apologized because he was a little cheeky in some of the comments. If you saw some of the, the, you know, the his post race interviews and things like that, he's he's kind of backed away from that now and, and kind of eaten a slice of humble pie and saying that um, that he he should have like joked about it, etc. But he's not going to change his podium celebration with his bottle smash routine. And then um, the next one, courtesy of Hang Singapore Ham Singapore twenty eighteen on Reddit, Red Bull have led ninety five point five nine or sorry. Point, yeah, 95.59% of laps of the 2023 season so far. So basically everything. And they actually have a chance of beating the record for hired per, highest percentage of laps led in a season by Constructor, which is currently held by the McLaren MP44. And that's back in 1988 when they led for 97.28% of the laps for the entire year. And of course, uh, there's a good tie in there because that 11th uh, consecutive win or 12th, uh, if you go back, include la- uh, Yas from last year. That beats McLaren's record that was set back in 1988, and uh, they led, uh, as I said, uh, 97.28% of the laps of the entire uh, season that year. And Max is now tied for second with seven consecutive wins. That puts him in uh, the same category, the same league as Alberto Ascari, Michael Schumacher, and Nico Rosberg. And then I, I think we just have to fact check the the, the date here, but um, Seb Vettel had night straight wins from Belgium to Brazil. And that's 2013. 20, yeah, 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 yeah. I thought I was going to say 2013. Yeah. Definitely yeah, that, wasn't that's 2023. That's a Hamilton production <laughs> era, but yeah, 2013. Yeah, but the crazy thing is, if you look at some of the other info that you dug up, Mark, Max could still topple a whole bunch of uh, more records this season. So this comes from just purchase 8454 on Reddit. So the some of the records that Max, and these are individual records. We're not even going to talk about um, uh, about team records here. So he could, uh, he needs seven more wins to get most wins in a season, most laps led in the season, most percentage of laps led in the season, most consecutive wins, highest win percentage in the season, most points scored in a, re- in a season, most number of poles in a season, largest points gap to P2, most podiums and highest podium percentage of podiums in a season most consecutive podiums i mean this goes on for page after page after page i'm just scrolling through my browser here so anyways if you want to check that one head over to the formula one subreddit and look for that uh that that posting there i mean mark i mean it is just uh it's insane like the stuff that uh what they're doing and the fact i mean First of all, I'm I'm impressed, and I'm I'm just my mind is you know so boggled that, that there are so many different categories of stats here that people are taking uh, you know keeping track of. But the the fact and this list has 14 potential records that Max could um, equal or better before the end of the season if he keeps going. That um, is just I, I I struggle to comprehend that. That is just uh, that is absolutely something else. So 
uh, another one here, fastest pit stop. So if you remember, was it last year, two years ago, where they introduced those uh, technical modifications to slow down pit stops? Because we saw here just uh, recently the you know um, so Sergio at the Hungarian Grand Prix last weekend a 1.90 second pit stop and that is uh, the fastest one that we've seen in a couple of years you go back to spanish grand prix in 2020 max had a 1.9 second uh, pit stop then max also had a 1.88 second pit stop that was at the german grand prix in 2019 alex albon had uh, a 1.86 second pit stop at the portuguese grand prix of portobello in 2020 max verstappen had a 1.86 second stop at the, the russian grand prix in 2020 and then max Verstappen had uh, a 1.82 second uh, pit stop at the Brasilia Grand Prix and back in 2019. And it's amazing that all these, um, and this is from motorsport, but it's as fast as pit stops. I thought that Williams also had like a sub two second pit stop, but all those uh, on there, all the sub two second uh, pit stops are all Red Bull. That is that that's something, Mark. I, I I have to hear your thoughts on that because those are you know four wheels. You know, come off the car, go on in less than two seconds. That's that's outstanding. <laughs> I'm struggling for words. Yeah, I don't I don't know I don't know how else I can embellish that conversation. It's it's a little bit startling, and it, it's also pretty ridiculous too that it it happened over a, a relatively extended period of time. Like you look at number one, 2019, mm-hmm. 2020, 2020, 2019, 2020, 2023. Uh, but also just remarkable the consistency that that, that that organization have been able to put together a crew of mechanics that can deliver with such with such consistency these sub two second pit stops. It's It's crazy. And you just talk about Red Bull as an organization, like as an industrial complex, everything they do just seems to be seems to be world class. Whether it's putting together the car, designing the car, uh, making agreements with suppliers, and picking great drivers. Well, I think we probably could probably debate that one a little bit, but picking top tier number one alpha drivers to kind of be the lead is is certainly something that they're very good at doing. When you talk about Sebastian Vettel and Max Verstappen, but yeah, like I look at this list, the top six fastest pit stops of all time belong to Red Bull drivers, and they've all happened since 2019 it's astonishing really when you think that all the things that have to go into a pit stop just under normal circumstances but to nail times like that i mean all all the things all the variables all the moving parts is just um like i say it's absolutely mind-boggling and 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 so so impressive anyway so this is kind of a cool one too so this is a championship points after the first 11 races of the season using the current point system just for consistency because we've got a whole range of um of uh teams and years and decades and stuff here so that doesn't count sprint races or fastest laps etc so if you go back to 2007 after um after 11 races of the season you had uh, McLaren with 372 points 2016 Mercedes had 378 points Red Bull in 2011 at 383 Mercedes in 2020 at 385 Mercedes in 2014 at 393 Mercedes in 2019 at 405 Red Bull in 2023 415 which uh, when you compare them to McLaren in 1988, had 419 points. And then in uh, Ferrari 2004, had 400, sorry, yeah, 423 points. And then Mercedes, after 11 championship races in the 2015 season, had 426 constructors 
championship points and those are all massive that that is again another impressive impressive uh, stat and kind of it's kind of neat too to throw that uh, that context in there too and use like the modern point scoring system so you can see how they they line up especially with uh, McLaren from 1988 because I talked about it on Sunday night I mean I, I still remember that season vaguely and watching it as a kid growing up and just how dominant Senna and Prost were. And <laughs> I know it all came to a head at Suzuka at the Japanese Grand Prix at the chicane at the end of the lap uh, that year. But I mean, before there was Hamilton and Rosberg and the, the, the bad relationship those two drivers had, Senna and Prost did it, uh, did it first way back when. But still, I mean, uh, that, just some great drivers and great names and very memorable seasons uh, thrown yeah. in there. A big shout out to Tennis4TS uh, on Reddit for kind of putting this together. But I always find it's interesting when you superimpose the current points scoring system on on championships from yesteryear where there are different accumulations and distributions and, and awarding of points. But I think this one's really interesting. And it's crazy, too, that we talk about just how great Red Bull's been this year. But after 11 mm-hmm. races, there's three teams, if you apply the current point scoring season or system, that have scored more points than that, that absolutely dominating McLaren team that you just spoke to a couple of minutes ago with the MP44, 419 points in 1988, Ferrari in 2004, of course, led by Michael Schumacher as he was coming to the end of his his Ferrari tenure and of course, Mercedes in 2015. But realistically, like if you look at Mercedes in 2015, for the first, I would say, with the exception of Hungary, I think, with the, with the first 11 races, I think that they were one or two almost every race. And I think there was a couple of exceptions where uh, Sebastian Vettel won in Malaysia in the second race. And I think the Mercedes drivers finished 2-3. But largely, they were 1-2, 1-2, 1-2, 1-2. And I think that's the real variance between what Mercedes was able to do in some of those early turbo hybrid years and what what uh, our friends at Red Bull are delivering this year because obviously the car is capable and Max is demonstrating what the car is capable of, but Sergio Perez is so significantly far behind him. And I guess if you look at that Mercedes team that year, Nico Rosberg and Lewis were just so close. And again, Lewis won that year with three champ with three races left to go. But again, at least in the first half of the season, they were the margin between the two of them was razor thin, and there's no margin between Sergio Perez and 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 Max Verstappen. There's a gully, there's a causeway, there's a freeway <laughs> between the two of them from a performance yeah. perspective. So the only reason, all that to say that Red Bull isn't leading is just because of some of Sergio's disappointing performances this year. Well, that's right. It's uh, how many points have they left out on the track? Especially you have that that run of several very disappointing races that uh, that that Sergio's uh, you know offered up over the past uh, couple of months. I mean, they they could be right up there at the top, or maybe even leading it if uh, if he was a little bit uh, better. And then finally, uh, here we have uh, pole positions on the current grid. So the rest of the fields and all. Um, so that's basically except for this one driver. They have 102 points. And that driver that I have named should be pretty uh, apparent who it is. That's Lewis Hamilton. Has 104 career pole positions. Daily, what the that- f***? Like that number, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, you're going to have to bleep that out. But that is just... It's just one of those like mind blowing, absolutely absurd statistics. <laughs> and of course, of course, I think if Sebastian Vettel was on the grid, this probably wouldn't be such a compelling statistic. But it is absolutely absurd that that Lewis Hamilton has 104 poles in his career. Just absolutely absurd. 
It is, but I mean, if if you go back, say, to the start of like uh, Mercedes dominance in in twenty fourteen, right, 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 how good w- w- was Lewis? It was just like it didn't matter who it was, if it like whoever had like provisional pole sometimes, and then Lewis would come around and he would just like set down an eye wateringly fast lap that would just smash the provisional pull time if he didn't already have the provisional pull time in his back pocket uh, as as it was it just bettered it i mean it was just it was almost money in the bank you could almost count on lewis to do that and and i had that vibe that last uh, that that last weekend in hungary that when we saw the you know the the last uh, rounds of hot laps going through there at the you know the dying moments of Q three, and then Lewis went and set that fastest lap. He didn't take it by much, but he did. But that was like a throwback to kind of like you know twenty twenty and before when Lewis had you know a much better car that he has right now, and I got really really excited because I thought for the first time in the longest time I was like maybe we're going to have a race here on Sunday. That unfortunately, by the time that uh, that the that the lights went green, that Lewis, you know, kind of started going backwards instead of you know holding on to that pole position and, and fighting it because I'm using P4 by the end of uh, lap one. But that that was an astounding, astounding lap that he put I'm into just, the Hungarian. I'm ring. just compiling some statistics in the background because you make a great point about Lewis in the early in the early, early turbo hybrid era. In 2014, he scored seven poles, which is actually far less than I would have expected him to have scored that year. Interesting. Course, okay. The championship. Yep. Went down to the final battle, final race. 2015, he had 11. But what's remarkable about 20, 2015 is he had 11. And then Nico Rosberg scored a pole in the final six races. So he didn't score a pole in the final six races because Nico just ran them all off. And then in 2016, I believe Lewis scored 12 podiums. And of course, at that point, Nico retires and it kind of opens up a little bit more. But yeah, like he was mm-hmm. averaging for a period during the early turbo hybrid era of 10 podiums per year. So it kind of logically makes sense that he was able to compile 104 over the course of his career. The thing that we're going to all start to watch now is if Max can string together a couple of years like Lewis did in that kind of early turbo hybrid era. If he can do so in 23, 24, 25, um, and he can start building on those Grand Prix victories, like, hey, you know what? It's realistic to talk about him maybe winning seven world championships and maybe scoring 100 career podiums and maybe scoring 100 career wins. Like, I think there's a lot of things that'll be decided in the next couple of years. So as bad as the championship's been this year, um, it's, it's all kind of table stakes for Max Verstappen because he has this opportunity to to leave an impression on the sport that is comparable only to Lewis Hamilton and Senna and Schumacher and some of the all-time greats. Yeah. You, you know, I, I don't want to take anything away from from Max Verstappen. And I know that records are made to be broken. I mean, you, you've always got, you know, to be the best, you have to beat the best, uh, right? But the thing is, I kind of want Lewis to hang on to it for a little bit. You know, I'm kind of good with Lewis kind of having all these uh, all, all these records uh, under his name. And, and sometimes, you know, there, there's some, not that it has to stand for like 50 years or something like that, but, you know, it's... Uh, but then again, I mean, Max is on an incredible run of form. I mean, you don't, you know, what what he's done and just how good he's been. I was just because you don't see this come along too often. But I was just about to contradict myself, say it almost the exact same thing. It's like just how good were Mercedes and Lewis, and especially you know, like uh, when when he had the I guess the adversity of uh, having a, like an in team rival like Rosberg uh, disappear. He racked up all those poles and wins and championships, etc. But so uh, let me let me contextualize yeah. my statement a little bit. So Lewis sits okay. on 104 poles. Michael Schumacher is second of all time at a 
68. So there's a 36 pole delta between the two of them. Uh, Senna, of course, his his career was truncated for obviously very sad reasons. He had 65 poles. Sebastian Vettel 57. Jim Clark 33. Alain Prost 33. Nigel Mansell 32. Rosberg 30. Juan Manuel Fangio 29. Max Verstappen is sitting on 27. So if he was to catch Lewis Hamilton, he'd effectively have to score 10 poles per season for the next eight seasons. Like that, that's absurd. So really, and so when I say, hey, he needs to make hay now, he has to make hay in 23, 24, and 25, because once the regulations reset in 26, kind of anything can happen. So if he wants to chase Lewis, he needs to make hay now and make up as much of that gap as possible. But yeah, the fact that he's still at this point, 77 poles behind Lewis is is it's crazy not to take anything away from Max. I think it just speaks to how great Lewis has been for such an extended period of time. But if anyone can do it, it's, it's Max Verstappen, but he just has to make hay during this period of Formula One history. But also you remember several years ago now when when uh, Lewis uh, bettered Senna's uh, uh, record. How many did you say he had? He had 68, was it? Senna's 65, the, 65. 65, because you remember when he did that, he clinched the pole in Montreal and they gave him one the of like Ayrton's- The helmet. The helmet. Race-worn helmets. Oh man, that doesn't seem like that, that long ago. That felt like last season. I know. Right? I know exactly what you yeah. mean. As you were saying, and I'm just like, that can't have been for breaking the pole record, but you're absolutely right. It was. And that, that that just goes to also speak to uh, like how like amazing Lewis was, what a torrid pace he was setting and recording pole positions because that would have been what twenty sixteen twenty must be it couldn't have been twenty sixteen maybe that was twenty seventeen but what a phenomenal pace of uh, record setting that Lewis went on after that okay before we head into a break here just a couple more things those pictures that you found uh, and they've been all over the place now with the Alfa Romeo with this uh, you know uh, the, the livery that they're going to rock at Belgium this weekend for with uh, with kick with like this uh, I don't know what we even know what to call it this like fluorescent yellow like on the car on the wheels on the wings man that looks amazing i can't wait to see this uh, car hit the hit the tracks that's gonna look uh, absolutely fantastic and this is something i never really caught on to here so uh, you know we've got a picture of uh, nico rosberg taking a selfie in front of uh, lewis hamilton's garage here and what what you've got here next to the pictures the, the rosberg cur- curse continues i did not know that there was a Daily thing as the social rosberg media curse. was a flutter that prior to the grand prix Nico Rosberg had taken a selfie in front of yeah. Lewis's garage. So you see this photo of of Nico, of course, his long flowing blonde hair. He's very well tanned. Yeah. He's wearing some lovely sunglasses. But behind him is the big banner above the garage that says Lewis Hamilton and his car yeah. is in behind. But apparently, and I didn't know this, apparently he's done this before and Lewis had coincidentally had an unfortunate race outcome or at least kind of fell down the order based on where he qualified. <laughs> so people, people are suggesting that the Rosberg curse continues and and that, it's that a Lewis's thing. It's performance a- <laughs> was cursed by the fact that Rosberg had taken a selfie in front of his garage. And uh, Nico's probably just saying, bro, I was just taking a selfie because why not? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that's hilarious. Anyways, let's take a quick break. We're going to come back. Uh, we're going to talk, uh, just take a, a quick uh, few minutes to wrap up a couple of things from last weekend's uh, Grand Prix. Got some news, some happenings over at Alpine. We got some things happening with... Uh, you know, there's something going on in Vegas regarding the Grand Prix, which will be interesting to talk about. And we'll do all that and more in a couple of moments. So please don't go away. We will be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. 
The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Welcome back to the show. So just takeaways from last weekend's uh, Hungarian Grand Prix. And um, well, as most everyone here knows, and obviously, Mark, as you would know, I did the show solo. So we haven't really had a chance, you and I, to to dive into this one in detail uh, since the, 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 the race went down. So I'm really keen to get uh, your two cents on this. So we've got uh, some of the comments we have here is that McLaren's for real. Ricardo starts strong. So let's uh, you know, let's start there. Let's uh, start with uh, Danny Ricardo. He made it into Q2. He had a uh, very good qualifying uh, performance, narrowly missed out on the points. But uh, most importantly, he finished the race and out-qualified his teammate, uh, Yuki Sonoda. And it, it's interesting, too, because, man, Formula One moves quickly, right? We were just uh, before the break, we were talking about how it, it seems that uh, it wasn't as that long long when since uh, Lewis uh, broke Ayrton Senna's pole record but we think about it Danny Ricardo has been out of the you know, out of a formula 1 car for only 8 months and it feels like a lot, a lot lot longer than that but I was really impressed I thought that Ricardo despite uh, not having that race fitness not having the benefit uh, because all these drivers now have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laps experience in these cars they race them in all sorts of different you know conditions now Ricardo having to do a very very difficult thing come into a team come in drive a car that he's not familiar with halfway through the season and you know that that AlphaTauri is not a great car to uh, begin with but you know he ticks all the you know the boxes in all the important categories out qualifies his teammate finishes ahead of his teammate and you know i liked what i saw from danny ricardo yeah Your i think, thoughts, uh, I think the, yeah. the single biggest thing here and and i think this will probably resonate with the football coaches and the basketball coaches out there but i think the single biggest thing for ricardo was that he needed to bring the car home and the reason he needed to bring yeah. the car home was he just needed to get reps in that car for exactly the reason that you just described which is every other driver has hundreds of laps with the current generation of formula one car the current iteration of the car he doesn't have any and he's been doing sim work for the rb19 he hasn't been 
been doing sim work for for Alpha Tauri, so a lot of this was a, a net new experience for him. And what compounds that, of course, is that this isn't a great car, and it's not a car that plays to his strengths. So I, I think to finish just outside of the points and to bring the car home and out qualify his teammate, I think all of those things are great. The other thing too that that's really important to note, and we talked about this a little bit last Thursday when we were getting ready for the Hungarian Grand Prix, is that this is one of the most physically demanding tracks for drivers. One, it's brutally hot. Um, it's a monster downforce circuit. And because there's no long straights, drivers have absolutely no opportunity to rest, to get a breather. Um, so it's super physically demanding. And a driver's fitness is really put to the limit, like tested to the extreme at this track. So I think for, for Daniel Ricciardo to step in and, and bring the car home speaks to his level of fitness. Uh, and it speaks to his awareness and familiarity with what he's working with. So I think the only thing that we can hope for for the rest of the season is that if we want to see an eventual uh, promotion to Red Bull, he just needs to continue to out-qualify and outperform Yuki every single weekend. Because I think a lot of us had been singing Yuki's praises in the first half of the season. The fact that, hey, you know, he got the card to the points a couple of times and he was just outside a couple of other times and there had been some bad luck and he was outperforming uh, Nick DeVries. But I think for Daniel now, it's just, hey, P9, P10, that's huge. P11, P12 is great if you can bring the car home unscathed and you can finish ahead of Yuki because I don't think anyone's going to expect a lot from this car, but I think you did a great job of summarizing. This was a great weekend. And I should add as well quickly too that Daniel Ricardo absolutely moves the needle when it comes to F1 interest. I was looking at I was looking at the statistics and the uh, analytics for our show and we'd done kind of two Daniel Ricardo shows. We did the emergency pod that did blockbuster yep. numbers, but then the show that we did that Friday our weekly news show, we led um, in the title of the podcast with Ricardo's back in F1. That show did the best numbers that we've seen in 3 months, like maybe even 4 months. Like Daniel Ricardo moves the needle of F1 interest and for reasons that we'll talk about in one of our later stories, that's really important because the season's been absolutely terrible. So if you bring in somebody like Daniel Ricardo, it gives us something else to talk about and be engaged about. It's interesting, right? Because we, we've kind of looked at this um, this story from one side is the fact that, and despite uh, Christian Horner and, and and Marco saying that, oh, uh, yeah, Ricardo's not here to get conditioned to you know challenge and take away Sergio Perez's seat. I mean, you know, read into that and take away from what whatever you want from those statements because <laughs> they're ruthless i mean uh, red bull i mean they they have no hesitation in pulling the plug on a driver you know middle of a season regardless if it's at red bull or alpha towery i mean they they've just you know, it's just something that they do but having seen that uh, you know that uh, you know what, what ricardo did last weekend in hungary now adds the second layer to that conversation is that this is what he did first weekend back into the car he outqualifies and out uh, you know, betters his teammate in the race so all of a sudden like internally at alpha towery there's got to be some you know conversations it's just like well, you know you know maybe uh, you know toast is uh, saying to to yuki's well well look look what danny did we know this isn't a great car but you know he finished p13 he wasn't really all that far off of the points and this is his first time in a in a race in you know since last year he said and and you know you've been with the team now for a couple of years what are your excuses you know this car is you know potentially better of uh, capable of a little bit more so very very interesting Daily, and, do you and buy that worth- like when we hear from helmet uh, from when we hear from helmet marco and christian horner about the fact that this isn't an audition and and sergio perez is our driver and he's under contract through next year like 
to me, I, I, it absolutely is an audition because if it wasn't and they were super invested in their junior drivers, they would have brought Liam Lawson back from Japan and they would have put him sure. in that Alpha Tower. That I, I don't see why you do this. I don't see, and obviously, like the media attention and the sponsorship buzz and all of that kind of stuff, super, super positive for a team that doesn't get a lot of buzz on the grid. I just, I don't see why you do this. You put a driver on the wrong side of 30 into uh, what is supposed to be your developmental B car if there isn't. Uh, aspirations or designs or the possibility or the consideration of putting it back into an RB19 or RB20 or RB21, whatever it works out to be. Like, I just don't sure. see why you do that. Like a hundred percent, it's because they, they need a backup plan for Sergio Perez and they weren't confident that it was going to be Yuki and they needed to put a more senior driver in there. Yeah, especially when it comes to like you, you can make like the uh, the the argument. It's just like, well, we want to get more screen time for our sponsors, but you know, like, what what's the point when the primary sponsor for that team is your own in your Red Bull in house clothing brand? I mean, it's not like that car's got a big Apple logo on the side of it or a, a BMW logo or whatever it is. So it it it's it's not like a marketing ploy from that. I mean, he's there for one reason. They're trying to hedge their bets, and you're just saying, you know, Mark is just like, what what, what do I think of Helmut Marco and Christian Horner? Saying all these things about Ricardo and, and, and Sergio Perez, let's just say I think that De- Christian Horner and Helmut Marco I think would make very good politicians. You know, <laughs> just the way that they kind of talk like that. And of course, in the, you know, I, I've been a little bit kind of like a you know silly about that, but uh, I mean, they're what else are they going to say? They're they're not going to say like publicly Sergio's not getting the, the he's not bringing home the goods he's not getting the job done they're not going to throw him under the bus uh, publicly but i mean they, they would not be doing their jobs properly they're, they would be doing their due diligence you know, properly either if they're not you know looking to to find someone to replace Sergio Perez and and, and that's you know that's that that's the job of you know anyone in in pro sports is like sure you might have uh, you, you might have the goat in your team be it a top Tom Brady, be it a Max Verstappen, be it a Lewis Hamilton, be it a LeBron James, but th- those people are far and few between. And you know, you always have to be looking for the, the you know the person that's going to give you the edge. And Sergio, as, as much as I love Sergio, and I'm by no means campaigning, I'm going to get up there on my soapbox and saying get Sergio Perez out of that Red Bull because we, we've seen that when he's on it, he's been a very, very good racing driver. But as we've seen, he has struggled. And we, as we know with the track rec- record that Red Bull has, that their tolerance for not delivering, especially, say, you know, since 2016, when this whole sort of uh, modern era of rotating drivers started, when they uh, rotated Max Verstappen and Danny Kvyat between uh, uh, Toro Rosso and Red Bull, that was just the start of it. I mean, we've seen this happen several times now, so we know that their tolerance is way less than 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 any other team. And we don't know what a Total Wolf and Mercedes would do because Total only has one team. He doesn't have the benefit of uh, you know hitting speed dial and calling you know the the, the team principal at the Mercedes Junior team that's like uh, you know a couple of grid boxes or garages down in the pit lane and saying you know well we've made a decision uh, you know driver x is out we're going to promote driver y from your team so it is a you know as we've <laughs> you know you know, screamed about over the years mark a unique and frustrating situation but um yeah i, I mean ricardo he's he's not there just because you know he's he's there to take perez's job and nothing will convince me otherwise hundred percent. I just, and you're right. Like they can't, they can't openly, 
I feel like they might be more candid in a different situation. And if that situation had been Daniel Ricardo was in the Alpha Tauri all season and that he was consistently fighting for points and Sergio Perez had served up the resume that he served up this year, then I think they might be more frank towards the media. In fact, they may have made the switch. Um, but again, I strongly believe that, hey, this isn't about developing a driver for the future. This is having an insurance policy in the event that Sergio Perez continues to struggle for the rest of the season the way that he has so far. And we talk about qualifying and some of his in-race performances and things like that. And then that totally, and you and I didn't talk about this, but winning driver of the day. And again, it's a fan vote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, that's such an unwarranted uh, recognition, right? Like you don't get to win driver of the day if you win a car that's eight tenths of a second faster than every other car in the sport. Like I, unless unless somebody clips you and you lose your front wing and you finish the rest of the race without half your aerodynamic downforce, like you don't get to win driver of the day, which I thought was a little bit unfortunate and a bad look for the sport. The other thing from the story on the athletic that I want to quickly touch on before we move on to some of the other stories was just this this recognition that the best of the rest seems really muddled, right? Like earlier this year, the best of the rest was so clearly, it was so clearly Aston Martin. And then it felt like Mercedes had a big breakthrough at the Spanish Grand Prix with some of their upgrades. And then all of a sudden Ferrari looked like they were starting to get things together in Austria. And then all of a sudden McLaren has this big breakthrough in, in Silverstone. And then they back it up when we go to Hungary. And then all of a sudden Aston Martin is struggling to stay in the points that it's very confusing. And I think for me this year, it's been an emotional roller coaster. Super excited for Aston. Yay, Mercedes is back. Ferrari's back. McLaren's back. It's it's very, very confusing. And I think the one thing that this article talks to is the fact that we have a pretty unique sample from, from McLaren now, right? Like when we talk about Silverstone, that's a high power relatively medium down for, for a circuit. And then you go to Hungary, which isn't a super high speed circuit. It's not a power circuit, except for maybe that one straight, but it is a monster down for a circuit. And they were both, they were able to excel in both conditions, uh, which I think suggests that, and we'll get into this when we talk about the, the Belgian Grand Prix a little bit later, but all of a sudden I, I feel like what what McLaren have been building is sustainable in, in a way that maybe what Mercedes has shown us and Ferrari had shown us isn't sustainable. And we also know that Mercedes is going to bring some upgrades this weekend, which I'll talk to a, a little bit later. Nothing crazy, but we also know that they've kind of tapped out on this season. Like, hey, we're throwing in the towel on this generation of car, but McLaren still has bucket loads of parts. Now, again, a lot of these are parts that should have been on the car uh, in Bahrain for winter testing. And there's just kind of being a little bit later down the pipeline. But I, I think we should be excited about McLaren, and I know a lot of people are. But yeah, the the best of the rest is super confusing because every time I feel like we can slot somebody into that number two spot, whether it's Aston Martin or Mercedes, everything gets thrown on its head. And I don't know if that's how you felt coming out of the Hungarian Grand Prix, but every time I think I understand the, the best of the rest, the field gets mixed up. And I'm just like, I don't even know what to think anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't agree more with you, Mark, and, and I, I don't want to try to remember who said this. Uh, and, you know, actually, I think it's been a couple of people that uh, that have said that if you just kind of take Red Bull out of the equation, and if we were racing with everyone else besides them, it actually would be a fascinating, very, very exciting season. It's just that you know, just because Max and Red Bull have been so dominant this season, you know, we're kind of 
do I want to use the word deprived of the excitement that's going on everywhere else? Because if if they weren't so dominant or if that, that gap was closer between themselves that, you know, we can have multiple teams fighting for wins and the championships. And, and I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's almost too easy at this point to tap out and say, you know, the, the, the championship, it's a foregone conclusion. It's boring. And, you know, I don't disagree with that because I mean, it has been, uh, you know, it's been feeling like a foregone conclusion after the first couple of races, but I, I just, you know, it's, it's like the whole iceberg thing. It's just like, we're just seeing what, what Max and Red Bull are doing, but there's all these other good and exciting things that I feel like is just getting lost in the amount of press, the amount of coverage that Max and Red Bull are getting. Daily, if you back Red Bull out of the championship, let's just say, hey, they they didn't choose to participate this year. They wanted to save money, whatever the reason. If you back them out of the championship, Fernando Alonso has two Grand Prix victories. Lewis has a Grand Prix victory. Charles Leclerc has a Grand Prix victory. And Lando Norris has two Grand Prix victories. Imagine that being your championship, that you would have had a driver from four different teams having won a Grand Prix 11 races into the season. Like that, that's pretty exciting. We just, we need to find a way to close. And it's not, it's not up to you and I, but the FIA and the sport (laughs) needs to find a way to close up that gap because yeah, what's happening basically three through 10 uh, on any given weekend is pretty exciting. It's just, Hey, Number one is a foregone conclusion, and wherever Sergio Perez manages to finish is uh, is usually a byproduct of the the car he's been gifted. Yeah, gifted. That's the the, the perfect word to, to use. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Mark. Uh, wouldn't that be interesting if that's the way it uh, worked out? Now, a team that gets almost uh, no coverage or gets very rare coverage on this show because they don't really do anything too newsworthy very often is Alpine. And their CEO, Laurent Rossi, has been uh, reassigned, been pushed out of the way. And he's been uh, replaced by somebody else. And this is interesting because this is the guy that basically threw the entire team under the bus only a couple of months ago told them to deliver etc anyway so um you know he's been reassigned and felipe creef who had joined alpine only in march of this year has been uh, appointed as rossi's uh, sa- uh, successor anyways uh, um, rossi's going to stay on as vice president of engineering and product performance and then uh, he will report to renault group ceo luca de mayo so rossi will now quote unquote now focus on special projects linked to the transformation Waffle, of R-O-F-L, the group. R-O-F-L, all LOL. Okay, sorry, I got to interject here. Yeah. So, so I, I, I liked how you kind of teed this up. That if you flash back to the Miami Grand Prix, he was being he was being interviewed. This Laurent Rossi, uh, who oversees the Alpine Road Car Division, the Alpine F1 project, uh, he was interviewed on Canal Plus, which is a big French broadcaster, and he absolutely crushed, decimated everyone related to the Alpine F1 project in a hugely and resoundly unprofessional way. And you and I were sitting here trying to unpack what the motivation for that would have been. And I think in hindsight, it was probably very much that uh, Renault CEO, Luca DeMaio, had come and cleaned him up behind closed doors. And his reaction, his visceral reaction, was to take it out on the team publicly as if that was going to be the means to motivate them. I think it was probably too late. But I do get such a kick out of this that rather than firing him, quote unquote, Laurent Rossi will now focus on special projects linked to the transformation of the group. Could like, could that be any more ambiguous and any more vague? It's like, (laughs) we're going to save ourselves the severance and send you down to work in the closet in the basement, counting staples, like such a, such a nonsense title. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? It's just like, it's it's a make work project. It's just like, you know, we're we're not going to get rid of you, but we're not sure what we're going to get you to do. So in the meantime, as Mark says, go down to the basement, count staples and post-it notes. And and dude, it just speaks to the lack of stability for Renault slash Alpine since they returned to the sport as a manufacturer in 2015, right? Like we've talked about this, like there's been like this ongoing churn of leaders and presumably it starts from the top and the fact that they're just picking the wrong people. But obviously, Cyril Abitable was there for a few years and he was departed. Um, and I think there's a lot of press about why and how that happened. And Laurent Rossi's only been there for two years. Like he only took the helm in January 2021. That's not a lot of time, but clearly they understood that he wasn't the right fit. But through all of this, I think Otmar Snafnauer is probably sitting there just like, what is what is going on? But I think he's probably also breathing easy that he kind of gets a second breath, a third breath a fourth life here um, under another leader but i think they're doing some some good things but i think ultimately we probably i probably heaped too much criticism on otmar last summer because of the nasty breakup with oscar piastri and the nasty breakup with fernando alonso and i probably didn't attribute enough of that blame to laurent rossi because at least in the case of fernando alonso one of the main understandings regarding his departure was simply they weren't willing to give him the money or the term and and Aston Martin was and I think he felt disrespected but Otmar's obviously not the one that holds the purse strings that's Laurent Rossi like he's the one that's going to go to Luca DeMeo the CEO of the Renault group and says hey I need 10 million dollars 15 million dollars a year to pay Fernando Alonso he wasn't able to come through and Fernando left so I think Otmar got a lot of negative press last year because he was left holding the bag in a sense as the team principal but I think a lot of that Blame should be attributed to Laurent Rossi and then the bad start this season and some of the other issues we'll talk about a little bit later. But this is uh, this was probably an appropriate move. Was it probably is an appropriate move? I just I'm surprised he's managed to keep a job uh, looking after special projects. If my employer's listening, and if you're ever <laughs> unhappy with my performance, just assign me to special projects linked to the transformation of our company. I will I will happily happily take that on. <laughs> One staple at a time. One staple at a time. Yeah, you know, it's one staple at a time. But, you know, Fernando, I mean, could you imagine if he stayed with the, with Alpine? Because, you know, despite like the, I would say the reversal of uh, Aston Martin's fortunes, they, they, they obviously aren't as rosy and as, uh, as good as they were earlier in the season. He's still out there. He's still scoring points. Okay, he hasn't been on the podium in a couple of races now. And, and you compare that to what happened at Alpine, you know, this past weekend in Hungary. Both cars out by the you know the end of the you know lap two. I mean, obviously it wasn't uh, their their own fault, but it just uh, you know it goes to prove once again that w- when it rains, it pours. Right? And it's just like the, the the teams like they're struggling, like they've got like a lack of leadership, and then it just you know it just it seems like when bad things happen, they just kind of like it comes Daily, and that, comes and comes. And that's that. such a good point on the Fernando piece, right? Like I think his career arc has fundamentally changed like 10 years, 15 years from now, when we reflect back on Fernando Alonso's career, you know what? His career was kind of fading out and it was fading out because he was over 40 years old and he was with a largely uncompetitive team. And then he suddenly goes to Aston Martin and he's got two P2 finishes. He has six podiums through the first 10 races of the season. Like he's fundamentally a new driver. And, and I think demonstrating to the sport that he's still one of the best drivers on the planet, but we wouldn't have known that if he'd studied with Alpine, he would have struggled with the same reliability issues, the same performance issues, the same underpowered internal combustion engine, all those reasons, like his talent would have been suppressed until the end of his career, because 
I think if he re-upped, that probably would have been the end of his career. He finishes this year, he finishes next year, maybe if he got a two-year deal. But ultimately, like he just kind of kind of fades out. Um, and I think going to Aston Martin was fantastic because it gave his entire career it gave us all a different way to evaluate his career that, hey, look, he always was this great driver. He was just cursed with bad cars. And of course, some of that has to be re- yeah, a reflection of enough. his decision making uh, in terms of where he point. went. But uh, I'm so happy he didn't stay with Alpine for the reason you just said. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, let's uh, do one more ra- uh, story here before we go into the next um, uh, break. And this is an interesting one. I have no idea how the mechanics or how this would work in reality. But apparently Formula was trying to block clubs in Vegas uh, and the views that they have of the track there, unless they pay them millions of dollars in fees. Now, th- you know, this is an interesting, right? Because I mean, this would be a thing. And I mean, just go watch like the, the, the Grand Prix in Monaco when you have like those hairpins that go down before they go into the tunnel. There's like apartment blocks and you always see like all the way around there, there's people looking out of buildings and things like that. And, you know, that's one thing I, I never like I've, I've been, you know, aware of it for years and years and years with, uh, you know, like street circuits and Formula One. But it's interesting because this is not a conversation that's ever been had that uh, that the people that are that live close by or just like decide to Airbnb it for a weekend. It's like, well, you know, I'll happily go away and let people come and uh, you know stay at my place and get a free view of the Formula One track as long as they're paying me like uh, to, to stay at my place and I charge them a ridiculous amount of money. But I don't I how, how do they do this? And it's just like it just seems like a pretty audacious if they were tr- to try and do it right yeah yeah so so one thing i want to explain to everybody listening at home is i do not feel bad for billionaire las vegas casino and restaurant owners because that's who owns them right and and i think what's happening here is and there's a really great quote here from the new york post which isn't a newspaper i typically reference on this show but there's a there's a quote here from <laughs> liberty that was addressed to some of the hospitality venue owners that encircle the track and it says las vegas Grand Prix will use reasonable efforts to maintain sightedness from licensee's venue to the track race. Further, it continues, the license fee will equal the maximum occupancy of licensee's venue per fire code multiplied by $1,500. So for instance, if you have a restaurant and the restaurant has even the smallest viewpoint of the track, even if only two tables can see it, but if your restaurant has any vantage point of the track at all, F1 is threatening to block that view unless you pay them a license fee that is $1,500 times the maximum occupancy of your restaurant or your hospitality venue. So for instance, if you and I had a restaurant and it had 100 seats, we would have to pay 100 times $1,500 or Liberty, because Liberty is actually the race organizer here, they're threatening to block your view. And they'll do it by shining lights at your venue, by putting up ballers, by putting up walls. They're basically threatening that, hey, if you want to be a part of this, you need to, you need to pony up. You need to be a part of the the financial experience, and and a lot of these hospitality owners, the restaurant owners, and the the casino owners are just screaming bloody murder. Like, how can they do this? How can they block the sight lines to to a public uh, to a public street, et cetera, et cetera? It's just I'm not I don't feel sorry for anyone. It's all pretty pathetic and 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 sad to be totally honest. Um, and again, I think one of the arguments that the 
the casino makers have here is like, look, our guests like to come multiple times a year, but if they're paying $2,000 for the right to sit in a restaurant, that is a view of the track. Maybe they can't afford to come back a second time this year. I can't relate to those people. I can't relate to the casino owners. <laughs> I don't care about any of this. It's all pretty pathetic, um, but I am excited to see the race come November 18th at my house where Daly and I are going to be hosting our first ever watch party. So we can talk about this a little more then if we want. Well, no, actually, I'm not coming now. I'm going to be sit. I'm going to be parked out in the streets with my high beams, like yeah. <laughs> pointed right in your living room, so Blocking nobody can see the television. Blocking the TV, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, it just uh, that that's you know when I read that part about like the like the spotlights shining it, they're like the windows are reducing sight lines. That's just like oh man, the lengths that uh, people uh, you know allegedly or potentially might go to to, to try to force this is, is a bit ridiculous. Anyways, let's take another uh, quick break. We'll come back on the, uh, the the flip side. Still a lot more to talk about before we get into the preview of the race, and we'll do that in just a moment. So please don't go away. We will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to the show, and here we go. So this is an interesting one, Mark, because uh, this is something that I didn't really expect uh, to hear. And now this is a Red Bull apparently is going to support Alpine's request to equalize the performance of power units. And I, I just can't uh, help but wonder that if there's something sort of some sort of residual left over from the relationship between Red Bull and Renault from the years it's that they not. were partnered as. Uh, yeah, as, it's not. It's not. It's not? No. Okay, then why don't you explain this one? Because so this is this is a fascinating story. And if you've been listening to Daily and I for a couple of years, you know that back really at the beginning of the 2022 season, uh, Formula One and the FIA froze engine development. They're basically saying, look, to save costs, we are freezing engine development. That the only modifications you can make to your power units from this point on are to resolve reliability woes. That, hey, if you have a component within your internal combustion engine and it's prone to failure, you can replace that component. But otherwise, engine development was frozen. And the understanding was that when the freeze happened, most of the power unit suppliers were producing engines that had remarkably similar levels of performance, right? That one team wasn't going to sign up to the engine freeze if it was if, if its engine was producing 5% less power than the competitors, right? It's not going to lock into a disadvantage. And I think there was a great deal of optimism in 21 and 22 that Alpine, who had kind of been the laggard, like if you look at the turbo hybrid era, Mercedes was always leading, followed by Ferrari, uh, followed by Renault, followed by Honda. Um, and then Honda kind of leapfrogged a couple of those teams and in 2019, 2020 became possibly the most powerful power unit on the grid. But for a variety of different reasons, Renault Alpine kind of slipped behind the rest of the competition. And there was some confidence that, hey, coming into late 21, they made a major upgrade to their power unit that suggested that their power delivery from the power unit was equivalent to that being produced by Ferrari and Honda and Mercedes, et cetera. Now, what's happened since then is that there's been this 
creep where the power units of the competitors seem to be getting stronger. So despite the fact that there's this power freeze, the power units from their competitors seem to be producing more and more power. So now there's this variance between the power that's being produced by Renault, uh, the Alpine cars, and the rest of the competition. And there's a interesting quote here from Otmar Snafnauer, and he says, Everybody is allowed to fix their reliability issues and hidden in reliability issues can sometimes be power upgrades. Depends on what reliability you're fixing. There's a lot of stuff that can be disguised as reliability and then you increase the power. So really what's happening here is Alpine, Renault, they've gone to the FIA, they've gone to Formula One and pleading that the sport enables them to equalize their power. And it's not clear how this would actually work, whether, hey, you can simply turn up your engine or, hey, you can get it on the bench and you can keep, make some upgrades. But the FIA has all kinds of data and telemetry um, and information that kind of informs them of where each of the individual teams are in terms of the power being produced by the power units. But there'd be an equalization effort here. Now, what you're speaking to a couple of minutes ago is really is interesting, which is that Christian Horner seems to be in favor of this. Um, and he says, I think it's a matter of seeing what are the deficits. I think the FIA have all the data and they should present exactly what the differences are. I think that would be fascinating for everybody to see. And I think if there is a deficit under the freeze, then it's something that we should be sensible about. Otherwise, you're locked in for two years. Of course, the engine freezes until the end of 25. So I wouldn't be adverse to a sensible discussion. Now, the reason, the reason that Christian Horner seems so generous here is that the only reason that there's an engine freeze at all is because he petitioned so loudly for it. So at the end of 20, when Honda announced they were exiting the sports and Red Bull announced they were going to buy the IP to develop the Honda power units themselves through 2025, Red Bull had said, look, I need the rest of the sport to agree to an engine freeze, that we will not have the internal capabilities to develop power, like incremental power from this power unit that we're inheriting from Honda. So to, to pacify Red Bull, the entire grid agreed to an engine freeze. And it was all because it was in need and a want of Red Bull. So I think it's nice that that Alpine is being accommodated by Red Bull and, and says Otmar Snafnauer, um, I'm glad that Christian said that, the quote I just read a couple of minutes ago, I'm glad Christian said that because if you look back at the reason the engines were frozen to begin with, it was because Honda were pulling out at the time and Red Bull didn't have an engine department to continue developing. The reason we all agreed was for the benefit of Red Bull. So it's quite nice that Christian recognize that. So I, I think it's a, a super, super fascinating story, but ultimately I think there's going to be some agreement between the Formula One group and the teams and the FIA about engine equalization. And again, I don't think typically somebody like Christian Horner would agree to this, but the only reason there's an engine freeze to begin with is because he lobbied for it and the teams agreed to give it to him. So it sounds like he's being generous. He's not really being that generous, especially when his power unit is so capable anyways. But I think of all the issues that the Renault has, um, power production for that power unit just happens to be another one. But I also think it's really interesting how Otmar speaks to the fact that, hey, look, all the other teams are producing incremental power through reliability upgrades that inadvertently or coincidentally sometimes when you introduce a new component to a power unit to address wink wink reliability issues it also has the byproduct of introducing higher rpm thresholds and the capability of producing more power so i think over the last couple of years during this freeze the other teams have continued to evolve their power unit Red Alpine haven't done that and that there'll be some sort of equalization effort here to get Alpine back to where the rest of the engines are so uh 
competition could be a little bit closer through the final two years of the freeze before we introduce that totally revised power unit for 26. Yeah, which uh, I mean, I'm still uh, fascinated and curious as to what those uh, you know engine regs are going to be when they finally decide upon them, because it uh, you know that's going to come pretty uh, pretty quick now. But it's funny, like you say that you know performance gains like under the guise of uh, reliability fixes is just like well, you know, sort of accidentally on purpose kind of happened totally. <laughs> when we totally. were fixing totally. problem whatever. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, let's talk now about the um, what Mohammed bin Salem is uh, warning uh, as uh, being manipulation as uh, the uh, decision timeline is set to announce uh, potentially two new teams to the Formula One grid that will take uh, take to the, the the streets and to the tracks in a couple of years from now. So he said, Ben uh, Salam has said that the, the FIA will have a final decision on prospective teams in about four to six weeks. So we're kind of looking maybe sort of Labor Day-ish kind of time frame here right at the end of the summer. So that's uh, kind of exciting so uh ben slam told formula point or dot uh, hu uh quote i hope we can make the announcement next month we are talking about serious people we don't want to exclude anyone without a thorough review of the applications that we have received we are talking about big names and big money i think the letter of intent idea was the right decision and the contract says that there can be 12 teams in the f1 field of course we just don't want any one team we want a team and we need a car manufacturer i prefer for manufacturers because it would be good for the sport. We've taken our time. The FIA team has worked very hard with the letter of the intent, and we've had meetings uh, with the teams to review their bids, and I think we'll have the final decision in four to six weeks, end quote. Exciting. Could be a wild summer, man. (laughs) Could be a wild summer for two reasons, right? Which is, one, we know the FOM and the teams have no desire to add a new team. I I shouldn't say that because I think McLaren and Alpine have have registered their desire to accept the Andrea bid, but I think we even heard from Stefano Domenicali last week saying he's not changing his position on an 11th team, let alone a 12th. And I think there's going to be a clash this summer because the FIA is going to recommend one of these teams and FOM is going to either be forcefully entered into negotiations that they're going to have to reject it. And then the other one, man, and this kind of segues perfectly into our next story. Um, and we kind of teased this last week, which is there's an awful lot of rumors flooding around right now about multiple teams having breached the cost cap last year. And if you recall last year, and I think our listeners do, there was reoccurring rumors that it was Red Bull, Red Bull, Red Bull. The FIA issued a statement denying it. Christian Horner denied it. Everyone denied it. And then the cost cap certificates of compliance came out. And guess what? Red Bull had exceeded the cost cap and they were going to be penalized. But the rumors now is that there's up to three teams. But I think the challenge is um, the FIA doesn't seem to be in any hurry uh, to get this this cost cap compliance certification process uh, exercised and says a statement from the FIA, uh, the auditing field work is still ongoing and is scheduled to conclude in the coming weeks, after which there'll be a period required for the finalization of the review. There is not and has never been a specific deadline for certification and any suggestions of delays to this process or potential breaches are completely unfounded. The cost cap administration will formally communicate its findings according to the procedure set out in the financial regulations. The time frame is intentionally not fixed in order to not prejudice, the robustness and the effectiveness of the review. Mark, I got to ask you a question because you know you live in a world that's very black or white when it comes to your professional career. And, and so do I. The fact that there is no fixed date to assess the cost cap compliance to me is, is wildly 
problematic, right? Like this can just drag on for months and months and months. And last year, we didn't know until October, until almost the completion of the subsequent season, whether any teams exceeded the cap. And we're sitting here, man, July 27th. I don't think we're going to hear anything during the summer break. So it's probably going to be September or October again. Like from your perspective, is that too long? Should there be a fixed date? Should it come earlier in the season? What are your perspectives on how this cost cap situation keeps playing out year after year? Yeah, to to, you know, to me that I, I feel like they're just uh, they're they're dotting all the i's and crossing all the t's. I think that if it was a, it was clear cut that uh, we would see something sooner rather than later. And the longer that this uh, drags on, I think uh, to from from my point of view, and I'm I'm not suggesting I know anything otherwise, but um, I, I just uh, to to me it feels like. And obviously, they have a mountain of information and financial data that they need to pour through. That uh, the, the longer that it goes on, just means that they're taking a good hard look at uh, at all these numbers for for whatever reason. Maybe that, uh, like I say, they're just being extra thorough, doing their due diligence, just to make sure that they don't miss something during the whole audit procedure, and that uh, that that uh, something can't come back and haunt them afterwards. But per- perhaps during the whole procedure, maybe they've found found something problematic maybe they they have found a team or several teams that uh, the rumors suggest have breached the cost cap and they're just uh, you know trying to go back and actually make sure that the numbers that they've come up with uh, you know that they they found a discrepancy despite whatever the teams are reporting so yeah i, I find it problematic to a certain degree but i but think you just more want problematic yeah, you just want the correct i just outcome. want an answer yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And if, if, if it takes, uh, it takes more time and then the, you know, the final answer is kind of like anticlimactic and they just say, yeah, nothing to see here. All 10 teams are in compliance. Uh, you know, like, uh, here, here's their certificates of compliance. Let's just, uh, move on. Everybody goes and lives uh, happy little lives or, or not. It's just like, oh, here's, uh, you know, nine teams that are in compliance or eight or seven or whatever the magic number is. It's just, uh, th- they have to go through the process. And, uh, you know, when, when it comes to things like this, you, you can't rush it. You you just have to to be you know do it the right way but um yeah I, I i would i would be less happy if they kind of rushed it through and it came back to haunt them you know i was i was talking to one of my my friends the other day on whatsapp and we were we were talking about red bull and again i don't mean to bring this up because i don't want to inflame a bunch of huge diehard red bull fans but the really reality is of course that last season they breached the cost cap um and they were penalized for it based on the financial regulations they took the fine they took the reduction in wind tunnel testing but you know we were talking about this and it was actually a good investment for them, right? And I'm not suggesting they were nefarious in their approach and their strategy, but ultimately the benefits of having overspent during 21, which had a recurring knock-on effect to the subsequent seasons, 22 and 23, it was ultimately a good investment for that team, right? Like, hey, look, maybe we're going to overspend. We're going to get a marked advantage over the field in certain ways with the development of our car. You know, we're going to pay a fine, which is irrelevant to us because we are swimming in cash and we're going to take a reduction in wind tunnel time, which we're not super worried about anyways, because we're so far ahead of the field when it comes to aerodynamic design anyways, that it was ultimately a good investment for them. And I think this goes back to what you and I were talking about last week, which is, again, I I assign all of the blame to the teams because they agreed to the financial regulations. But I fear you'll see that again in the future, which is a team's going to say, look, we are going to overspend this year in 2026 because it's the new year or the first year of the regulations. We're going to get a financial penalty. 
I don't care. The sports flush with cash will pay that penalty, but it's going to give us a marked advantage over the rest of the field. And I think the only way to avoid incentivizing that type of behavior is ultimately to have sporting penalties, which you and I talked about, right? Which is, hey, if you breach the cap, we're going to take away constructors points. We're going to take away driver's championship points. Like We are going to penalize you in a way that actually hurts because cash means nothing to these teams. You think $7 million means anything to Red Bull? And again, it's not a criticism of the FIA. They were implementing the rules as they were written, but they don't work and you've got to get to sporting penalties. Yeah, absolutely. That that that's the only way it is. I mean, they got to put some teeth into it. Otherwise, uh, you know, th- th- there is no incentive to stay between the lines, stay in your lane, and and, and comply because it just uh, becomes uh, a minor inconvenience or cost of uh, doing business. And it's just like uh, you know, they'll, they'll they'll weigh the risks, the pros and the cons. And if uh, it comes out uh, that um, you know we're going to gain an advantage just by being uh, creative with our catering costs, as the joke uh, kind of goes, and uh, maybe that's uh, that that's what we do. So. We'll just have to wait and see. But I, I will be very, very alarmed that if um, there is something to this rumor, and you know, we won't know one way or another until the uh, you know they they make their final uh, you know report and announce who's in compliance and who isn't. But I, I would be extremely alarmed if uh, there were a number of teams that uh, that have breached uh, the, the the cost cap. So we'll just have to wait and see and let the process uh, play out. Okay, a couple more stories until we uh, get into the uh, Belgian Grand Prix uh, preview. So. Uh, this one comes from Michelle Foster over Planet F1. And Nico Rosberg, very upset after a Sky F1 junior called him Brittany during the uh, Hungarian Grand Prix uh, uh, broadcast. So apparently, Brittany is the nickname that was uh, given to uh, Nico by uh, Mark Weber. He uh, divulged that uh, to uh, you know the uh, the Sky Sport Junior hosts uh, you know earlier. And then there was uh, you know a bit of a back and forth. So Scarlett, one of the hosts, said, "Good luck, Brittany. I hope you do well." And Rosberg replied. Said, uh, quote, no, Scarlet, that was not cool. I share a secret with you guys, so that was not cool at all. Uh, so Scarlet then said, Thank you, Brittany. Rosberg said, Please apologize. She said, Sorry. And Nico said, Apology accepted. <laughs> so, a bit of a, a funny moment it was, there. And, it was you super know, awkward, man. Like, I, I've seen the video. First of all, by the way, huge kudos to Sky. If you don't know, they did a youth centric, youth focused F1 broadcast with really cool visuals, and they had youth comments commentators and things like that. Very cool. Kind of like how Nickelodeon's done NFL um, NFL broadcasts in the past. And they have the huge slime cannons when there's every touchdown. It kind of reminded me of that. And I was thinking like, this would have been so good when I was a kid because I'd watch F1, but the broadcast to a seven-year-old, 10-year-old are incredibly boring. But yeah, this moment was very, very awkward. Um, just the fact that Scarlett had doubled down because he told this story that's obviously very sensitive to him. And she said, and he, he basically says, thanks, Brittany. And, and he says, that's not cool. And then she doubles down on it and he has to push back until which point so that she apologizes. But yeah, very, very awkward moment during what was otherwise a really cool youth focused broadcast. Yeah, I used some of the clips uh, from some of those interviews that they had um, and, and some of the pieces they did in the, the post-race show that it did on Sunday night. I thought that they did a, a really good job from what I saw of it, but uh, you know, may, maybe that uh, you know, Nico's learned the hard way and will maybe not res- you know divulge you know sensitive personal nicknames and information <laughs> next time. Okay, so let's uh, get on to uh, Aston Martin now. This one comes uh, from the race.com by uh, it's an article by Ed Straw called "Why Aston Martin's Reality." 
check admission is so significant. So this is uh, something that this was a term that was thrown out there by Aston Martin uh, team principal Mike Crack. And he said uh, they had a reality check after, uh, you know, Fernando and Lance finished both ninth and 10th at the Hungarian Grand Prix last weekend. And uh, that was just, uh, you know, just uh, one example. And then uh, rather than say that was something that was negative, he said, uh, Mike Crack, that is, says that uh, reflected a shift in the team's um, uh, team's uh, mindset. Anyways, uh, Crack told the race.com, quote, at the end of the day, I don't think uh, it is a strategy thing that made us go in one or the other direction. The cars uh, were in pace order on the track where we thought we would be more competitive and we're not. This is a reality check for us. We've slipped back. Uh, we have to be honest about it. 70 seconds after 70 laps is not lying. There were no safety cars, no major incidents. We need to work hard to give our drivers a better car because they maximize what we could do. End quote. So, yeah, that would be a bit of a reality check. But Mark, you know, as uh, we've um, you know been talking about over not just in this program earlier on, but over the past uh, you know several weeks, that they've kind of been you know slipping and they've also kind of stagnated uh, in the way that they've been uh, scoring points. Those podium nows have uh, sort of changed for at least uh, Fernando to sort of top fives. Now they're sort of like top tens, and uh, to get back onto the podium now seems like it would be a little bit of a you know. A, a, a tough order because we go back even as recently as Montreal and Fernando, he didn't seem really too concerned about like their form at, at, at that point. And I guess that's going back about six or seven weeks now, but uh, you know, to suggest that we might see an Aston Martin on the podium this weekend in Belgium seems like a, a bit of a stretch. Don't you yeah, agree? It seems wholly unrealistic. And we'll talk about this in a couple of minutes, but I think it's a, it's a combination of things, which is that the early races, those tracks really suited this car, but also that Aston Martin just had a phenomenal winter in terms of preparing and putting that car together. And, and of course, Fernando Alonso was driving the absolute wheels off of it, but I think we've clearly seen the competition cut that delta. Uh, obviously, Mercedes has brought a raft of new upgrades, almost all entirely new aerodynamic surfaces and rear wing and floor and floor edges, and, and McLaren's done exactly the same. So I think that a lot of the work that they had done in the offseason to leapfrog the competition, the competition has now subsequently uh, introduced parts of equivalent performance. And, and I think we're beginning to see that, but it's, it's tough, right? Because if you look at Great Britain, obviously Fernando Alonso finished P7 and, and Lance Stroll finished P9 in the points, but certainly not contending for a podium. And that's a high power, relatively medium downforce circuit. And then you go to Hungary, which is a track that you would have expected them to do pretty well at based on some of their successes earlier in the season. That it's a monster downforce circuit that doesn't really doesn't really necessitate the need for a super capable power unit and really strong power delivery. Um, and they they did pretty poorly there as well. I think a P9 and a P10 finish just managed to get into the points. And then we talk about now we're going to go to a, an entirely different type of circuit, um, something that probably better resembles Monzo or better resembles um, Silverstone in terms of its characteristics. And I have no reason to expect that they're going to do well. So it could just be one of those things where this team was so far ahead of the competition in terms of the development of the car of the winter that they were able to make hay early on in the season. And now the rest of the competition is simply caught up to them. And what we're seeing now could be could be what we see through the rest of the season. But like you, I and we'll get into it, but I, I, I'm not particularly optimistic that they're going to be contending for podiums this weekend. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree, Mark. It, it's just like it, it seems like it's it's going to be very unrealistic uh, to suggest that they would be on the podium th- this weekend. But even beyond when we we hit the you know the restart of the season on the other side of the the upcoming summer break, because where the other teams like Mercedes, like McLaren and Ferrari, and they've all improved in one way or another. Aston Martin's uh, stagnated and even you know re- regressed, obviously uh, in comparison to those uh, other teams. And like I say, I, um, or I said a little bit earlier, I mean it, it's it's perfectly illustrated. You've got had Fernando that's gone from podiums and has regressed to top fives, and now has regressed to, to to top ten finishes. And Lance is still kind of like you know you know still about where he's been all season. He hasn't really improved uh, one way or another. I mean, he's sort of delivering in about the, the, the same fashion that he has, but Fernando certainly has uh, struggled. So, you know, what they do to turn this season around, I'm not really too sure, but it, it would be disappointing because they were such uh, a bright light. But, you know, having said that, I mean, at least for you know the spectacle and the storyline, that um, you know, at least now it's not just a Red Bull, and then uh, Aston Martin's doing some awesome things where, where they've uh, slipped up. McLaren have stepped up in the past uh, several races, which have made that kind of a, a feel good and, and newsworthy story as well. But certainly, if uh, you're Mike Crack and uh, Fernando and Lance, the entire team at Aston Martin, you got to be concerned about uh, what's uh, what, what's going on. Okay, the next story. This uh, comes uh, from the Sports Illustrated, and this should not be a very surprising one. This comes uh, from Linda, sorry, Lydia Me. And uh, the article's uh, titled, uh, American Viewership Dwindling as Boring Calendar Continues. So I I don't think that this is uh, any shock. I mean, Formula One really rocketed into the forefront of um, uh, American sporting consciousness over the past uh, couple of years. You know, most particularly during the pandemic, the early days of COVID, when everybody else was sitting at home, Formula One was about the only thing that was going on there, albeit uh, racing in front of empty stands. They were still able to to uh, do a 17 race season in, in 2020, and then back to almost a a, a full calendar the next year in 2021. Last year was a normal season, as as is this year. And then, of course, as things have recovered, uh, you know, in a post COVID world, I mean, Formula One was really positioned nicely because uh, you had the the whole drive to survive phenomena, which generated huge amount of interest. But uh, the, the the way that the championship has gone this year, and then I guess to to, to last year to a certain extent, uh, although it was a, a little bit more competition, there were other people winning races. This year, I mean, uh, you know, it, it doesn't become you know appointment TV for a, a lot of people now for for the casual fan on a Sunday to sit down and uh, and watch a race. And th- this is not a swipe at uh, at Max Verstappen. I mean, it could be almost uh, anyone, but I, I think it's it's fairly you know fair to say. That that uh, the the American sporting public that were so in love and enamored with Formula One just in in recent times uh, just um, you're not not willing to do it. And I should just uh, maybe you've got the numbers uh, ha- you know handy here, Mark. Maybe you know what uh, what what they're getting for ratings. But uh, I don't think it should be a, a surprise at all. Just uh, what what this uh, championship has served up this year that uh, you know people are just deciding not to tune in on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I think what's startling about this is despite the fact that there seems to be ongoing demand for tickets at the actual events. And again, you're talking about a small sample, right? Selling tickets to two, three, four hundred thousand people. I think there's going to be some reoccurring demand year over year, especially if you can't get tickets one year, you're probably going to try again the next year. But I think where we're seeing the decline and the regression is on broadcast TV in the US, particularly ESPN and, and ABC. And again, the comps... 
<laughs> I'm having some microphone issues here, but I think the comps are pretty good when you look at a three or four year window. But I think if you look at the comps versus the prior year, um, they're they're not particularly favorable. Um, and I think that speaks to exactly what you and I have talked about so much is that it's not a compelling championship. It's not engaging. It's not, and I loved what you said a couple of minutes ago, it's not appointment TV that, look, I'm going to watch the Grand Prix because I'm interested. I'm not going to get up necessarily at 5 a.m. in the morning to make breakfast and sit down and watch it live. And I'll be totally honest with you too, man. Like I'm also at the point now where five, six years ago, if if somebody spoiled the outcome of a race, I would have lost my mind. I don't even care anymore. Like I don't even, I get up in the morning, I scroll through social media. If I see the outcome of the race, fine, because I know what the outcome of the race is going to be anyways. And I just, I feel like my experience is probably comparable to, to a lot of the F1 community at this point, which is what, what, what's the enticement to watch a race. And again, not to criticize max or Red Bull, but I just, I hope, I hope that the cost cap can continue to bite. And over the next couple of years, we can see the field start to tighten up a little bit more because what we're seeing this year for all the accolades that we give to Max Verstappen and Red Bull, it's not good for the sustainability of the sport because if eyeballs go away, sponsors go away, the attention goes away. And that's not what any of us want. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you, but I uh, guess it shouldn't be uh, too surprising nonetheless. And I guess this is the point that uh, that I got to uh, remind myself uh, what we're calling this next segment, because we've got the, uh, the music running here in the background. It was is, is F1 Academy Compound, yes, right? Yes, it's the F1 is, Academy is, Compound. Yes, okay, so I did remember, yes. So we have a story this week, a couple actually, yeah, okay, so, a really exciting yes. F1 Academy Compound stories. Do you have the music teed up? Can I hear it live? No, I don't. So okay, put it in post. By, by the time put it in post. I'll I was it anxious, but I trust that you'll put it in post. So two really exciting things that came up this week with respect to to F1 Academy. One is it's largely confirmed now that F1 Academy will follow the F1 calendar next year. So this year, one of the challenges for F1 Academy from an exposure perspective is that they haven't been racing the same calendar as Formula One. So while Formula One's in Silverstone, they're in Valencia, or they're somewhere else entirely. They're in a different part of the globe. And unfortunately, when that happens, there aren't broadcast cameras at the F1 Academy events. There isn't a ton of media. There isn't a lot of exposure or coverage. So next year, we know now that every single F1 Academy event will function as a support series event at an F1 Grand Prix. So that's really good news. The other story that broke a couple of days ago is this. And I I should kind of set the table first. F1 Academy has five teams. Each team has three cars. So there's 15 drivers in total. Next year, 10 of those 15 cars will wear the identical livery of an F1 team. So there will be a Red Bull liveried car, a Ferrari liveried car, there will be an Alpine liveried car, etc. And the corresponding F1 teams will pick the driver that pilots the F1 Academy car that is wearing their livery. So very, very cool. And it kind of speaks to this, the the synergies, the growing synergies and connections between F1 and F1 Academy. So I think that's very cool. And you're probably asking, what about the other five cars? Well, um, they're going to explain how that's going to work later, but they'll still have 15 cars on the grid. And those other five drivers will find their way under the grid through different sponsorships and collaborations and things like that. But again, the big story here is one, all of the F1 Academy races next year will function as a support series at an F1 Grand Prix. And two, 10 of the 15 cars next year will wear mocked up liveries designed to emulate a Formula One car. And the team with which 
that is based on will pick the driver that's going into that car. And there's actually a couple of F1 juniors on the on the grid already, and Abby pulling, and um, I can't remember the other one. Um, but Abby pulling in one other driver, I apologize, but next year it'll probably speak to the fact that more F1 teams will probably want to add female drivers to their academies because they're going to have a car rocking their livery in F1 Academy. Now, again, it's still completely a spec series, Ferrari, Red Bull, Mercedes will have no technical input into these cars at all. Um, because that's not the point, but the point is that they're going to have a relationship and they're going to be picking the drivers that goes into those cars. So I thought that was a pretty cool story to share, uh, today. Yeah, that is pretty cool, too. And it kind of reminded me, too, of uh, what you see now, like in women's cycling, like uh, last weekend, the men tour, the, the men's tour wrapped up Sunday when they went into Paris for the the, the final stage. But at the same time, the women's tour, the Tour de France Femme was uh, kicking off, too. And a lot of the elite uh, teams, they all have a uh, you know, women's team as well. So the men's team, you have uh, Jonas Vingegaard, who uh, rides for Jumbo Visma. He won his second tour in the row. They have uh, a Jumbo Visma w- women's team. So do uh, Lidl Trek. So do Movistar, a whole bunch of them so it's great to see things like that so you know hopefully that uh, you know this is just the next step that we see with the f1 academy and um, you know i i still disappointed that uh, you know f1 didn't step in and do more with the demise of the of the 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 w series but i'm really glad and we've probably said this a couple of times now but at least now running the show with the the f1 academy is Susie wolf who herself is a you know accomplished uh, formula one driver and uh, you know knows what uh, needs to to get done so i'm uh, very confident uh, that uh, this should uh, you know be the next uh, positive step uh, forward and the next uh, you know part of the journey of the evolution so that's uh, great to hear okay so mark let's finally get into the uh, the, the preview of the uh, the grand prix this uh, weekend the on again off again but uh, finally back on again belgian grand prix at the uh, iconic um, uh, spa francochamps uh, circuit so here we go 44 laps uh, this uh, weekend is a 308 kilometer race distance it's a 7 kilometer long track the lap record was set in 2018 by Valtteri Bottas in his Mercedes. That's 146.286. So we have um, the C2, C3, and C4. So not quite sort of the middle of the road of the uh, Pirelli tire compounds. But the the, the big question is uh, this weekend, will anybody be able to stop uh, Max Verstappen? Will anybody else be able to beat uh, Max Verstappen? And, uh, you know, such a long power circuit that we see with Spa. I just find it... You know, <laughs> I found it a, a bit a bit doubtful. I, I I'm hopeful that somebody will, but I mean, you've got like so many like fast sections to this uh, to this uh, circuit that uh, where we're going to see backs just disappear down the track uh, off into the distance. So I I, I don't really know <laughs> what to say or to uh, expect otherwise. Yeah, I Mark. think kind of off the track, uh, probably quick update in just in terms of the future of the the Belgian Grand Prix. And I, I think you probably saw the story if you're listening to this podcast that the Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Groo has been actively lobbying Stefano Domenicali and the rest of Formula One for a long-term contract extension. We've seen a number of tracks be awarded them recently, including Hungary. They got a long-term deal and some of the other circuits that we've seen recently. Um, we do have an agreement in, in Belgium for 2024. And I think the reason that this is relevant is because um, 
while we all acknowledge the immense risks and dangers of racing at this track, um, it's a track that I think a lot of us, including the driver, still get very, very excited for. And I, I think to tee up the nature of this track, it's important to kind of define, and I've done this a little bit lately, but it's kind of important to define the nature of Formula One tracks that you have high downforce circuits, monster downforce circuits, which is exactly what we saw last weekend in Hungary, which is a circuit where uh, aerodynamic attributes and characteristics are really important over the raw horsepower and power delivery of a car that ultimately look, you know what, there's some medium speed corners and aerodynamic downforce is really important because that's going to allow the car to stick to the corners and stick to the ground and carry speed through the corners. And then you have high speed power tracks where look, you know what? You strip away a lot of that uh, downforce generating aerody kind of aerodynamic characteristics and features of the car because you want the car to be as slippery as possible because you want it to go as fast as possible in a straight line. And while Belgium certainly isn't Monza, um, it's certainly one of the most unique power circuits on on the on the calendar. That you know, if you look at if you look at the first sector, if you look at the third sector, um, they are, with the exception of a couple of corners in the chicane, uh, really high 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 horsepower, high speed, high power power um, sectors. And if you look at the second sector, there's definitely some medium downforce sections in it. And the reason all of this is relevant is you often see some real variations between how some teams set up the car for this track and how some others do. And some teams that are typically down on power, they're going to try to maximize the high downforce or the medium downforce sections of the circuit by putting on high downforce wings and things like that, because they're like, look, we may not be able to compete in the high power strength rates, but we're going to try to pick up as much speed as possible and as much time as possible through sector two, which is where you have those medium speed corners. And then you have other teams that say, look, at the end of the day, we are a very slippery car. We don't create a lot of drag. We're going to put on a low downforce wing and we're just going to gun it. You know, we might lose a little bit of time in those medium downforce corners relative to the cars that put on a more high downforce wing um, and a different type of setup, but ultimately we feel we can make it up. So you typically see these wild variations between how teams teams are going to set up their cars for this weekend, but it's a track where one, I think obviously Red Bull is going to excel because one, they're an extremely high power car that can be slippery when necessary. Even when they have on a relatively low downforce setup, they seem to be able to create a remarkable amount of downforce in medium speed corners. So there's every reason to think that they're going to be good. We talked earlier this season about the fact that, hey, the Williams can be particularly slippery and I would expect them to do well this weekend. I would certainly expect them to do well at Monza. Um, and then from there, it becomes a bit of a question mark, right? Like Alpine should really struggle this weekend because that car is down on power versus the rest of the field, like we just said. So I wouldn't expect them to do well. I certainly wouldn't expect Alpha Tauri to do well. Uh, McLaren should do very well this weekend. And I speak to that because in a lot of ways, Silverstone has similar characteristics, some high speed sectors, some medium downforce corners, and they excelled. They absolutely excelled at Silverstone. So I would expect that that success is going to carry over this weekend. And when it comes to Aston Martin, you know, I think they do well in high downforce circuits, although we certainly didn't see that in Hungary. Um, so I'm not sure necessarily how they're going to perform here, but it is a intense circuit. Like you said, um, it's the longest circuit on the track. It also has some intense elevation changes. Uh, the elevation between the highest and lowest points of the circuit is over a hundred meters. And when you see the cars drop, um, 
turn seven, eight, nine, when they enter sector two, they shed a ton of elevation. So when you look at a topographical map, it looks like, okay, that's an interesting sequence of bends. But when you see it from the driver's perspective, they are dropping massive elevation while they're doing it. So uh, that's interesting to consider um, as well. There's also points of this track where they generate up to six Gs uh, of, of force. So I think we talked last week about, hey, you know what? Hungary is a pretty extreme circuit. There are sectors and components and complexes on this track that could also be pretty extreme um, extreme as well. Now, I put together a couple of statistics because I thought this would be pretty interesting. When we talk about high power circuits in F1, we always think about Monza. Now we think about Jetta. We think about Silverstone. We think about Spa. Monza, uh, the average speed the average speed is 164 miles an hour or 264 kilometers. Jet is 157 and 252. Silverstone is 156 and 250. Spa is 154 and 247. Um, and then the max speeds that are typically reached at these individual circuits at Monza, you see speeds of up to 225 miles an hour, 362 kilometers. Jet 202 and 325, which is terrifying given how tightly confined that circuit is. Silverstone's 225 and 362. And we typically see top speeds at Spa of around 200 miles an hour or 323 kilometers. So not quite as fast as we see at some of these other power circuits, but certainly amongst some of the fastest average speeds and some of the fastest um, top speeds that we see anywhere on the calendar. And again, that's why typically teams that have cars that generate a lot of top end power and have really immense power delivery and can be particularly slippery in their setup do really, really, really well here. Now, going into this weekend, we we know that some of the teams are going to bring upgrades. We don't know a lot of them yet. And a lot of this is attributed to the fact that F1 now has this show and tell concept. So typically, we don't know the full extent of the upgrades until an hour, an hour and a half before free practice one, where the teams actually have to trot the cars out in front of their garages and hand out a list of all of the upgrades that they brought. But what we do know is that almost all of the teams have brought ultra low downforce wings this weekend. Some of them are new. Aston Martin, for instance, this weekend, we know so far, and this hasn't been made official, but we know that they've got some significant floor upgrades and a new low downforce wing that we haven't seen before. Mercedes as well is also introducing a new low downforce wing, which we haven't seen before. Also, they're introducing some updated side pods that have an entirely new cooling inlet design, which is more similar to the current Red Bull and Aston Martin versions. Alpine is introducing front wing flaps as well. But I Again, we don't know the full extent and we won't until tomorrow. Now, the thing that we haven't spoken about is, as we see all too often, uh, this can be a really wet track and it's been pouring with rain all week. So, you know, we talk about the fact that, hey, we're going to bring the medium range of the tire compounds. That might be irrelevant because we might be running on wets or intermediates all weekend anyways. Uh, so with that, I think that's probably something that's important to consider. The other thing that's going to be really unique about this weekend daily is that this is the third sprint weekend of the year. So when you talk about that weekend, you've got free practice one tomorrow morning. So by the time most people are listening to this, we've already done free practice one. That is the one shot deal that these teams have to set up these cars for for the weekend. And then it's basically locked in for qualifying on Friday afternoon. And then you have sprint qualifying Saturday morning, the sprint race, and then you have the Grand Prix on Sunday. So if you make a mistake with the setup on Friday, and they're going to have to base the setup based on the forecast that they're seeing, the latest real-time forecast that they're seeing, if you get it wrong, that's going to haunt you for the rest of the weekend. So again, tons of points available this weekend, a mistake, a bad 
I would say, um, assessment of what the conditions are going to look like during free practice one is going to set you back. But again, I have every reason to think like you do that Red Bull should dominate this weekend. But I think it's also important to kind of consider a couple of other things too, that we also saw a young driver die here within the last month. And that while they've done some things, particularly around that complex, that section, it turns three, four, and five, they've done some things. I think we can fairly continue to question whether this track is as safe as it needs to be. Now, uh, there were some interesting quotes from the Grand Prix Drivers Association President George Russell recently, in which he indicated that, hey, you know, there were suggestions of further safety upgrades, but we rejected them based on the premise that we're pretty happy with what the circuit, what the race organizers and what the FIA have come up with. So it'll be interesting to see. And it'll also be interesting to see because you and I sat here for hours after the Belgian Grand Prix in 2021, talking about what a travesty that was, that the FIA wasn't bold enough. They weren't brave enough to just cancel that race, that they trotted everyone out for a couple of laps behind a safety car just so they could get it classified. But if the rain's going to be really torrential this weekend, which makes an already dangerous circuit even more dangerous, will the FIA be bold enough, brave enough, um, as some drivers have suggested, to cancel a session or to cancel a sprint race or to cancel a Grand Prix? Uh, And that'll be really interesting to see because I think going back to 2021, not even in hindsight, but just in the moment, we all knew the right thing to do was to cancel that race, not to trot people up behind a safety car. So I know I said a lot, a lot to process, but there's a lot to talk about when it comes to, uh, to comes, comes to this event. Yeah, I don't really have uh, too much more to add to than what you've already said, Mark. But uh, I was just uh, I pulled up the, the the forecast here, so we're looking uh, for um, showers, the possibility of a thunderstorm on Friday. We're looking for clouds and occasional rain on Saturday, and then we have uh, periods of cloud and sun on Sunday. So it sounds like we're going to get a little bit of uh, everything here. And as you so rightly uh, mentioned, that you know we we've seen some pretty bad weather here in recent times, but we we've seen bad weather there um like over the 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 the, the decades it's not uh, unha- uh, unheard of and safety has to be paramount because uh, we've uh, you know sadly seen too many fatalities there even in recent times we we had the big crash there was it last year the w series there was right, a big accident right. there in that in that radion rouge complex lando had a big smash up there too and um in qualifying was, was it last year or the year before so i mean yeah, so I mean, there's there's been some near misses as well. In in addition to the, uh, the 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 tragedies that we've seen on this track in the past couple of years, so I mean, if if it the the weather looks bad, you know, like very much like yourself, I just hope that they have the guts to make the right call and just say, you know what, we really want to go race today, but we know the right decision is to keep all the cars in the garage and, you know, try again some, some other time, because it's just, it's not worth uh, risking life and limb for, you know, just to, to get cars out on the track because, you know, the, the, the costs are, are just a uh, way too, too high. So I just want to finish it up here just with a, a couple more stats uh, before we wrap it up. So the most winningest constructor at Spa is Ferrari. They've won there a total of 18 times. First time was in 1952, most recently 2019. McLaren, not too far off. They've won there 14 times, first time in 68, last time in 2012. Lotus, Mercedes, Red Bull, Alfa Romeo, 
Bugatti, Maserati, and Benetton are all teams that uh, that have won there. Lotus won there, uh, you know, a total of eight times, sixty-two to eighty-five. Mercedes, um, well, a couple of times was a uh, pre-World War II, but in the modern era, they've uh, won there in uh, nineteen fifty-five, and then went a very, very long time until they won again, and that was uh, in twenty fifteen. Red Bull have won there a total of five times, so I'm sure it would be the boldest prediction to suggest that they might increase their tally by a, uh, you know to raise it to six by this time. Uh, you know, next week uh, by we, when we sit down to talk about this uh, this race. Anyways, the most winningest driver at uh, the Belgian Grand Prix is Michael Schumacher, won it six times. Ayrton Senna won it five. Jim Clark, Kimi Räikkönen, and Lewis Hamilton have all won it four times apiece. Juan Manuel Fangio, Damon Hill, and Seb Vettel won it three times. Ascari, Fittipaldi, Nicky Lauda, Alan Prost, and Max Verstappen have won this twice in a row, and Max has won it twice in a row, starting in 21 and 22, although I'm sure there should be an asterisk beside that uh, 2021 uh, victory uh, behind the, uh, the, the the safety car. Anyways, Mark, I don't know. I don't think there's anything else to add at this point. I think we can uh, wrap it up. Um, you know, Thank you one and all for, for listening to the show. Thank you for uh, jumping on board. Thank you for all the support. If you want to uh, do us a, a favor and uh, support us, easiest and quickest way to do so is just to hop onto Apple or Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you enjoy your, your podcast and uh, leave a rating and review. That uh, is always appreciated. And share it with a friend or a family member or someone you think uh, might enjoy it and if you want to get in touch uh, send us a tweet at a scooter f1 pod or send us an email at scooter f1 pod at gmail.com and that is it for now that's a wrap enjoy the sprint uh, weekend we will be back on sunday night to wrap up all the action from the week weekend that uh, is about to take place in front of us and until then enjoy the race enjoy the weekend we'll talk to you again very very soon bye for now